Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and we are this morning in a fascinating place. We're in the Furniture Conservation Lab, which really does look like a laboratory, of Peebles Island. And Peebles Island is where the Bureau of Historic Sites is for New York State. And we're here because this is the bailiwick of David Bain. He is a furniture conservator par excellence. And he's just shown me the most remarkable thing, which we'll talk about in a minute, where he's recreating things that Frank Lloyd Wright built for a home in Buffalo, New York, from old plans that he has to be like a detective to figure out. So thank you, David Bain, for joining us. Um, I'd like to just start and find out a bit about what drew you to this field in the first place. How did you become a furniture conservator? Um, Well, I was a furniture maker for about 11 years, and there was a program that came up at the Smithsonian, and a friend of mine bet me that I couldn't get into the program. And so I took him up on the bet, and I got in, and um, it was great because, yeah, that, I learned about conservation, but really I got into it mainly because I wanted to learn about furniture design. And um, conservation is obviously subsumed design. Yeah. So um, I did read up a little on you, and you, you used to also make musical instruments. Is that right? Yeah. I, I had a, one of my second or third jobs right at the beginning. I was up in Vermont, and I worked for an outfit called the Turin Musica, and they um, specialized in viola de gambas. And the, the master builder, if you will, his wife, wife uh, wanted to start a line of Celtic harps. So he asked me if I would I would build harps for him. So I built about 30 harps altogether. So the common thread is working with wood to build things? I'm looking for a common thread because I couldn't find one. You're early. You went to Reed College and studied yeah. biology? I don't know where you get all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I graduated from Reed in uh, biology, and basically I was very much interested in population biology and how animals change their behavior in order to match their environments and have maximum success. Specifically with birds. So I studied nesting behaviors of birds on a private island off the coast of Georgia. And then I studied birds also in the Sierras. And then I went back to the island in Georgia and became a woodworker there. This is where I really got started in woodworking. What a serendipitous excursion your life has been. It was birds that drew you to an island in Georgia where you started making furniture and a bet with a friend that got you into the Smithsonian program where you became a conservator. Wow. So why is it that conservation, conserving furniture, has subsumed the design of furniture, which is where you started? What about it rivets you? Why is that? Well, the the biology at Reed obviously is a science, and before that, as a chemistry major, so having the chemistry background and the science background as a whole uh, 
put together with the craft of building furniture uh, was perfect for conservation because that's what conservators are basically trying to do. Conservators are know a lot about historic materials and techniques, how things are put together. So I use the biology to identify what kind of woods there are, for example, and then I might use the science to figure out what kind of the coatings there are, uh, use a microscope, figure out what the coatings are, and then the design as a result of that, you learn about um, what materials would be used at certain time periods in certain cultures, and so therefore you start to get into the design part. And what has kept you at it all these years? You've been here how long? <laughs> um, I've been here somewhere around 25 years. It's a good job. <laughs> but what about it? Tell me, like, what, what's, if there may be no typical day, but if there were, what, what would it consist of? Uh, some of it is insanely tedious. Some of it you can't imagine anybody doing. But then there's also real highlights. And we were talking earlier about the, the, the Frank Lloyd Wright project. But the, also the chairs behind you, for example, those chairs were used by the signers of the Bill of Rights. And oh. <laughs> the two chairs over there were used by Schuyler, uh, Philip Schuyler, who was the father of Liza Schuyler, who married Alexander Hamilton. So it's quite possible that Hamilton and Eliza sat, sat in those chairs. chairs. Well, so let's back up and hear about the chairs right behind me. Just could you describe, because we don't have any visuals, you know, what 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 period they're from, what style they're in, and what it is you're going to do to them to make them right that's a lot to answer okay. but um the chairs are uh basically uh, around uh i'm probably going to get this wrong 1787 1789 they were built for the very first u.s senate when the right after the the winning of the war um the first u.s congress met in new york city and they converted in order to make the room for everybody to meet they took city hall remade it into what was then called Federal Hall. And the architect and no, in New York City. In New York City. That's important. (laughs) (laughs) That's why because you're New York State, of course. Well yeah. They only met there for one year. Okay. They only met there once and then they moved to Philadelphia. And then they moved to Washington D C. So there's you know um but uh what so the architect that was hired to convert city hall into federal hall his name was pierre lafont and he's the one that designed washington dc and so he was the architect and he probably and he was also a colleague or a friend with the comte de mustier who's the french ambassador the Moustier and George Washington were good friends. They would hung out, hung out together. So it is quite likely possible that um, uh, Lafont may have designed those chairs. He would have been familiar with the French uh, antecedents of those chairs. And he said, this is the latest and the greatest, just what you need for your new building, and let's build some. You know, that's a very shorthand version. But, but that's a great version. So... It's a great version, but it may not be true. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was just going to ask, how, how do you or anyone, how did they come to you with this um, provenance? Is that provenance would be the right word. Yeah. They, they're in um, the John Jay Historic Site, which is down in Westchester County in Casanova, uh, okay. um, 
Katona. And John Jay, we have good records. John Jay, when he left the, uh, to become uh, governor of New York, he had some chairs transferred to his, um, what was going to be his retirement home in, in Katona. And so, yes, those four chairs came from there. And then the, there's another four in existence, and they are um, down at the New York Historical Society. And they may be the first example of, a, of this type of French chair in the U.S. And it subsequently was copied. It became a popular form. Yes, it looks familiar, but yeah. I didn't know the history. So what is your job with these chairs? What are you going to do to these chairs, and then what will happen to them when you're finished? Um, the chairs have been, they were in the family, so the chairs were considerably broken up. The, there is apocryphal stories of the, the kids pushing each other up and down the chair, uh, down the hall in the chairs using the casters on the bottom. As a result, the arms have been on almost all of them have been broken off, and there's examples of the legs broken off. Since we are interpreting the house for when the family lived there, these are we're going to basically try to keep them as old chairs they're going to look like old chairs because they're going into an old house however the upholstery will be new and in order to the upholstery that has been put on in the past has been so many campaigns it's destroyed the frame in a lot of ways there's um, the nails and the nail holes are historical documents, so we don't want to put in more nails and wreck the frames anymore. So what we're going to do is make um, frames that, I, what I'm going to do is make frames that sit inside that then we can upholster and cover so it'll look like it's nailed onto the frame. And I should just um, intercede here because as we came to David's lab, we walked down a corridor where he pointed out He's not alone in these pursuits, and he has walked us by, let me see, textile room, x-ray room, framing room, paper lab. So there's a whole hallway of people in this old warehouse on this beautiful island in the Hudson River that are working away on the various parts of restoring our history. Um, I'd love it if you could just... Tell us about these other two chairs you pointed to in the same kind of way. What do you know about them? Um, that one is a little more speculative. Yes, they were owned by Philip Schuyler. They were in Schuyler Mansion. We know that. And, and is that where they're going back to? And that's where they're going to go back. Um, they're made out of satin wood, which is a very rare wood. And it's very unusual to use solid satin wood to make chairs. So these are carved shield back chairs with a cone, with a, a raking profile. And they were probably, well, they're not probably, they were made in England. They probably were London. We're fairly certain that they're pretty high style. This is about the best you could get, um, about 1790 in this case. And so it's interesting that Philip Schuyler, uh, you know, a classic Revolutionary War patriot is buying furniture from the enemy. <laughs> yeah. What's also interesting is that, um, well, no, let's not get into that. But anyways, yes. And so they were brought over. They're satin wood. They have painted flowers and decorations on the front. Um, and then they were covered with gold silk damask. 
And so again, we're going to try to do the upholstery so that the doesn't uh, put any more nail holes or anything else into the frame. And also that way on both the J chairs and the Skylar chairs, you can take off the upholstery if you want to look at the frame and figure out, you know, what's the evidence there. So you're thinking of the future and people like you in the future wanting to look right. at these pieces of furniture. And- yeah. Almost all of conservation is based on the idea that I reserve the right to be smarter today, tomorrow than I am today. I so somebody philosophy in general. <laughs> so the idea is that somebody's going to come along. They might have more evidence, or they might have more analytical tools, or they might just basically have a whole lot more skills than any me, me or any of my colleagues do. And so they could take everything apart that we've done, and then they could do it the way they think is right. So just a couple of follow-up questions on that. I've never heard of satinwood. Is that a tree? There's a satinwood tree? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, Satinwood is a tree. And it grows in um, the West Indies, which would be the Caribbean. And we're sure that these chairs were made in England, and that's a great historical interpretation you had buying from the enemy. But just how do you know? Like, how can you tell that it was made in England? What kinds of things do you... Um, Well, the sophistication of the design would be... It's basically you have to have a good understanding of cone geometry in order to to build those chairs. It's an inverted cone. Um, and you, this won't work vi- uh, to describe it verbally, but visually, yes, you could see that. Um, so th- there's that part of it. And then the um, there's just not a market. They would have been so expensive. There just would not have been a market in the colonies for that. And also for the chairs behind you. The, those chairs, there was, uh, the, again, the John Jay chairs, those were... Um, the one of the people that we think worked on that set in the 1780s then moved to Philadelphia and there's a he trained other people and also made some very sophisticated furniture that just there's only a few pieces that are around and there's one other piece that keeps drawing my eye and I think you mentioned it's a table upside down waiting for you to figure out how to reproduce it or replicate it and I think you said it was from a national This is is a pretty unusual project for us. The National Park Service got in touch with us and they asked if they could uh, make copies of uh, furniture that was at Skylar Mansion. There's a chair there they wanted to copy and that table they want to copy. And the National Park Service has a site up the Hudson Valley um, near Saratoga, Saratoga Springs. And that used to be Schuyler's country house. So Philip Schuyler, he had a big mansion in Albany, which was a you know a big show place. But he also had a country place that was uh, uh, up the river, and that's where all of his farms and his mines and all of that's where he made his money was up there. So he was the National Park Service wants to tell the story of the family going from one house to the other and bringing um, stuff from the house up to the. Uh, up to their to their property, so they're having these tables and chairs replicated to tell that story. So, not knowing anything about this again, it just how do you find a piece of wood? The the one leaf of the table that you can see from where we're sitting looks like it's 
wider than the yard. Is that that's a single piece of wood? That's a single piece of wood. So, like, how do you find a single piece of wood? The trees are all gone that were that that big. Yes, you're not also not going to find uh, mahogany of that quality. Um, basic, the real short answer, and I don't mean to be flippant. It's no. not my problem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody, somebody gives you the supplies. And all I all I'm doing is making the table and the chair. All we are doing is making the table and the chair available for a craftsman to um, make copies of. I see. Okay. And not he's going to come in here and make drawings and take dimensions, and there. then. It's up to him to come up with the wood. Okay. Yeah. It just seems like that might be a problem. It will be a problem, yeah. yes. <laughs> so before we sat in front of our microphones, um, David was showing me this fascinating project that I hope he can just kind of walk through, even though the visuals are so important, but just, you know, through the microphones, um, the Darwin Martin House in Buffalo, a Frank Lloyd Wright building, which... Um, Frank Lloyd Wright, as was typical, designed the furniture for as well. And Martin, there was a wonderful quote in the article that you wrote. He used a French phrase like tous ensemble, you know, he all together was meant tous ensemble magnifique or something. All together it was magnificent. And so David has spread out on a work table a copy of a plan for furniture that was drawn by Wright and annotated by the client that was getting the house, Darwin Martin. And he has also photographs, black and white photos, of this furniture. And just, can you describe to me the process that you went through drawing those lines and figuring out what the exchange was? Um, The drawing that you were talking about is annotated, and it seems as though Wright and Martin, probably with their heads together, were trying to figure out. um, I think what was happening is Martin was making suggestions. This is what I would want. I want you to change your design. Um, And so they made all these scribble marks on it. But there's contradictions, and it's hard to figure out which one, which of the possibilities was actually made. So, but there are photographs of this chair in particular that um, the chair no longer exists, or we can't find copies of it, or nobody knows we're looking. I don't know. But anyways, we want to make copies of that chair. So there are photographs of the chair, and I'm looking at the chair in the photograph and using perspective lines to try to figure out what the actual dimensions were that um, the chair was built at. So the there's, say for example, the arm height, there's three different or maybe even four different possibilities for the height of the arm on the chair, which of those four were built. So I go back to the photograph and then I scale off the photograph using the other objects in the photograph to figure out what the scale is and then come up with what the um, actual as-built height was. Yeah, and what you deduced was it was a compromise that um, Martin had wanted 22 inches, for instance, in one height and he got 19 so right. it's like just seeing an interplay happen currently that's actually way in the past right right well one thing i wanted to ask you about i know that um on saturday october 20th um 
the Schoharie Historical Society is having you speak at the Old Stone Fort in a workshop. And I just wonder, I know you can't recreate a whole workshop in a few minutes for us, but the kinds of things, if you give these workshops or on Saturday, that people might expect to be finding or learning or what kind of, what can the layman learn from all your expertise, I guess, is the question. Um, well, the workshop, the Old Stone Fort, um, is set up for um, care and handling, basically. And that is the sort of the bread and butter of conservation, and meaning that a lot of conservation starts with housekeepers. And how you do housekeeping determines how the furniture, in my case, or any other object might survive through the years. So if you have good housekeeping, if you take care of things nicely, they'll come out in a certain way. Not like the John Jay chairs with kids running up and down the hall. <laughs> but so, like, what are what are tenets of good housekeeping? Uh, um, handling is one, and you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, if you want your chairs to last forever, you don't run them up and down the hall with kids pushing pushing other kids in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, handling is part of it, and then cleaning would be another part. So, yeah. what can we learn about cleaning? Those of us that don't have historic furniture of this magnitude but just you know kind of 1800s stuff that we're fond of i mean what like how should we or how shouldn't we be cleaning them well if you think about it uh well the way i think about it is that uh the number one there's a variety of things that can deteriorate furniture or any other decorative object it could be that the temperature is too high it could be that the relativity relative humidity is too high and very importantly it could be that the light is too strong but really the number one agent of deterioration is people it's people who need to use or want to use the furniture. The furniture that survived in King Tut's tomb, for example, that's in great shape until somebody <laughs> opened the tomb and started pulling it out. Yeah. So what you try to do for good housekeeping is do as little as you possibly can. Um, dusting would be as great. Try not to use strong chemicals or, or soaps or detergents. Try not to bang into things. Like even if you're vacuuming, I've seen lots of damage just from vacuum cleaning. What, how, what's that? Please elucidate because I think we all vacuum. What, should, what damage can we do? Well, I can tell you from firsthand experience, I was vacuuming underneath my grandfather's chest of drawers and I pulled off a big chunk of veneers. So you push the vacuum underneath, oh, you pull it back out and the veneer pops off. And around the bottoms of chairs, if you're waxing your floors or if you're, you could get all kinds of crap basically yeah, in the bottoms of your it. chairs. Or the other way to go is if you really um, if you really want to get it clean, so you take a very um, ammoniated cleaner and you can strip var- uh, varnishes off fairly quickly. Or if you insist upon having your grandmother's needlework displayed in the bright sunny room, it's going to fade in no time. So, and likewise with paper documents, if you have a photograph or if you have a, a watercolor drawing, that's going to fade with light and you never, you can so never recover that. So even if you that. pay that extra for the special glass that they say protects it, it's really... It's just, it just retards it. So it just, just slows it down. The so, deterioration is ongoing. So the lesson is keep it out of the light. 
but that contradicts with the whole reason for having, having it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you wrote in one of your articles about how museums, if they display something for even a period of weeks, then have it rest, I think was the phrase you used, in the dark for a long period of time. But in households, and what about, is it bad to polish or wax furniture that's old? Or? It, it can and it can't be. Um, it depends on how you do it. Um, and just plain wax is not corrosive. It won't take off varnishes or anything like that. And it's fairly easy to get it off. But the process of putting on the wax and manipulating the furniture and, and polishing it really hard or rubbing at it really hard with your hands, that can break things. That can pull veneers off and um, can be destructive. And that's what I've been saying for years and years in a museum setting. But then I talked to a restorer friend of mine, and she said, you don't tell them to wax. Because basically, from her point of view, um, she's seeing furniture that gets waxed like every six months. And so there's a tremendous wax buildup. Build so how often should you wax if you're going to do it? Um, so based upon her experience, I would say no more than you have to. And if you get to the point where it's getting smudgy, it's probably time to figure out a way to take the wax off and then start the whole process over again. I would say, you know, at our at our sites, which uh, we probably don't wax more than every four or five years, I would say. And before we sat in front of our microphones, you had mentioned that your job, it seems more than job, avocation, I guess, um, avocation, maybe. <laughs> anyway, it was a joining of art, science, and craft. And I but just hope you can unpack that a little. I think you indicated that the craft part of it had maybe fallen a little by the wayside. Well, it, it, it's interesting. I just attended a symposium down in Delaware, and they were talking about the Asian influences on American decorative arts. And it was a bunch of curators, like you might expect, and art historians. And they were trying to come up with documentation or some other way to show that something from some idea from Asia got to Europe or the United States. But it also could be done through craft. You could see something like the chairs behind you. That's, that would be a good example. Those chairs perhaps were inspired by um, a French designer, and they were made by American craftsmen. But uh, there was somebody in Philadelphia whose name is Thomas Affleck. He came up, he saw those chairs, and so he made copies of those chairs in his own idea So uh, down in Philadelphia. And those were the chairs that are now used, et cetera, for the second U.S. Senate. So there was an idea which, where the, uh, the design was being transmitted by a craftsman. It wasn't a designer saying, I want you to build this. It's a craftsman who's saying, I want to build these. I see. And, and that's kind of true to your roots because you were a craftsman. Right. And you your own design. Right. And so um, the Frank Lloyd Wright project or the redesigning or reengineering that chair I have to sort of use my craft background to say, okay, the joinery here would probably be this or that, depending upon, um, you know, the this, this situation. 
and uh, varnishes would be another way to look at it. Varnishes is also a craft and the coatings that were put on things. So you can look at the coatings, find out what the original coatings are, and that tells you the level of sophistication of the original craftsman. It also can tell you the trade routes. Um, for example, if something has a lacquer on it, that lacquer came from Asia. It didn't come from the United States. But you could have um, European or Western imitations of lacquer. So then you have, again, it's craft. Okay, what is the, how do you make a varnish? How do I get that Asian look when I'm making a varnish? Fascinating. I feel like you ought to add to art, science, craft, and detective work. I mean, so much of each thing you've described has to do with, it's almost like you're a doctor trying to figure out what's medically wrong with somebody you know right. like it's easy it, to gather these yeah the the part that i haven't really mentioned yet is the curators the cure the curators they can come up with genealogies they can come up with styles they can come up with receipts letters all that kind of stuff and then they might come back and those chairs the john jay chairs is another well the the frank lloyd wright chairs is also an example they can say well this is what I've got. Does this chair match that description? And that's where, that's also the inner, that's, they do their detective work. So you're putting the social history with with the actual physical object. object, Right. Fascinating. Well, our half an hour went way too fast. Is there anything you have that you think is important? I know there's tons, but I didn't ask about that you have as closing thoughts or anything Um, Not too much. It's just I want to put in a plug for the Old Stone Fort and Schoharie Historical Society. (laughs) They have a really cool collection. I went over there to look at it for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'd never heard of the Schoharie chess that they have there, which is pretty neat. What is that? It's a painted chess, folk art kind uh-huh. of thing and I had worked at this um, uh, Shelburne Museum which is oh, folk art capital my sister works there oh cool she's a printer really? oh really yeah. oh neat and so yeah this is this is an example of a regional um, art form that got developed in Schoharie and it's pretty cool stuff and that's there all the time even if yeah. people aren't at your workshop they can go see that oh neat yeah Good I'm not know. I'm not I'm not doing any conservation work for no. them yeah no. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, hope it works for you.